This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to the show. First off, before we get into the show, I'd like to thank all of you who tuned in and watched our Evolve conference. Uh, we tried something new. You know, our sponsors really took a leap of faith and believed in us. And the feedback that we've had thus far has been overwhelmingly positive. So if you weren't able to catch it live, no worries. You can still go and view the sessions on our website. Just go to the uh, Evolve tab and you'll find all the sessions there. We sat down with uh, Chip Moldenhauer from Arbo, who also participated uh, in the Evolve conference, if you didn't catch that session. Um, had a really good chat with him, so I hope you enjoy this episode. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Willing Yesterday's podcast. We've been busy as hell shooting all the content for Evolve. Uh, so we've got our buddy Chip Moldenhauer, right? Got it. Did, got I, did it. I nail yep. it? There we Nailed go. it. From Arbo, formerly Law IQ. Man, welcome to the studio. Yeah, great to be here, guys. Uh, I was uh, telling Colin, uh, I was looking at my passbook from the last time I you know, traveled to Houston, and it was almost exactly a year ago. So excited <laughs> to be back in Houston. Uh, I've been meeting with uh, customers, which is something uh, myself and the rest of the team enjoy more than anything. So it's been been tough. Uh, you guys are yeah. out of D.C., right? We're out of D.C., so we've had our... It's our not really sh- common. It's not very, not, not, not very, not very good, often right. that we have somebody from D.C. Yeah, yeah, I think you may be the first uh, D.C. Uh, I was going to be one of my okay. questions if you had another energy tech uh, you know, company from D.C. On not the, many. On the yeah, podcast. No, so it's I good, good to have it, a first. Yeah. We actually, And I actually, you know, many people say they're from D.C. and then they live in like uh, somewhere in Virginia or something. I actually live three blocks from the Capitol. So, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're, we're there with um, my kids who are elementary school age, and it's been, you guys have had your share of yeah. craziness, sort of black swan events. You know, recently I heard someone call it a uh, the black elephant type of events. Like we should predict that it's like the elephant in the room, that these <laughs> crazy issues are going to happen. We've but, had like 500 year floods, like three years in a row. Then we had Snowvid happen. Negative it's, oil prices. Yeah, it's so crazy. All kinds of crazy events in the last two years. Yeah, if our, our craziness was obviously everything that happened in the, the Capitol being a couple blocks from there. And now, yeah, I was going to ask about the insurrection. You know, being three blocks away, I'm sure. That yeah, was it, it was a, it was a very scary day. Our kids were they have a one day a week uh, play group, uh, and they were out at a playground that's actually a couple blocks from the Capitol. So wow, yeah, we're my wife and I were getting you know, blown up texts uh, back and forth. Hey, do you see what's going on? And I was immersed in a in a zoom call like many of us are um, not paying attention to it we got in the car raced over picked up the kids uh, they, were fri- they were frightened terrifying. yeah whole thing's terrifying uh, they learned how to you know ride their bikes skateboard rate on the capitol steps that's where we spent most of the pandemic so it's been a kind of a seismic shift for us now having a, a wall a three mile wall which many people don't realize uh, yeah around the capitol but yeah uh, anyway we're we, we walk a different direction now. <laughs> There's a three-mile wall around the Capitol now? Yes, it's a th- uh, three-mile wall. Many people don't realize it's about 11 feet tall. It's got barbed wire around it. Um, it's favorite running path, almost like uh, it's almost like taking a wall and putting it around Central Park. It's uh, crazy to imagine. But, yeah, the uh, only reason I knew about it is I've seen some memes kind of relating how they've put up a wall around the Capitol, but there was so much backlash against the wall on the border, and I just thought that was wild that... That literally changed, you know, if you live in that area, I mean, I'm sure that changes your daily routine Huge. drastically. Huge for kids' trips in the future, you know, and the pandemic, we're out of the pandemic and people are coming from Houston to the Capitol. And, yeah, you know, this is our, this is our shining democracy right here, which, you know. Yeah. Uh, it makes you look at things through a little bit of a different lens. I mean, you look at other regimes in other countries, 
And if they have walls with barbed wire around their capitals, <laughs> right? Yeah, kind of makes you wonder where the hell we're going. But what anyways, let's yeah. not get on politics. <laughs> this can go down. <laughs> anyways, uh, Arbo, what is Arbo? Yeah, so Arbo started formerly known as uh, Law IQ. I founded a yeah. business about uh, six years ago. Our focus at the time, we we're going through a big, huge infrastructure build out. You know, the transition from from coal to gas, and you know, my background sort of unique. You and I were talking mm-hmm. a little bit about it. You know, ahead of time was. Uh, serving in the uh, the Navy ahead of time, then I went to law school and was in the energy regulatory space. And you know, my viewpoint at the time was that regulatory and permitting was going to be a roadblock for for building out energy infrastructure. And there's lots of anecdotes and stories we talk about now. So we built out a predictive modeling engine to predict when permitting uh, would occur, the timing of it, and the variability, which you know ended up helping about ninety billion dollars of capital projects get through and you know, transition. So Arbo, you know, we realize our vision. You know, as you guys you know run your own business and your own startup, you at a certain point in time realize your vision could be taken much further. You know, based on the team. You know, based on the tech, you know, based on your own capabilities. And uh, we had customers coming to us, you know, the past two years, like, hey, this energy transition, it's happening. Um, you know, we, we need your help. So, you know, Arbo is about modernizing energy commerce. Uh, you know, a lot of that is really knitting together this patchwork of the energy ecosystem with the digital infrastructure that's really enabling the next generation, or some people call it kind of a crew change to occur. Uh, that mm-hmm. You know, the folks that we work with are all tech savvy. Uh, they want to, they want a place in the energy transition and we're, you know, providing it to them with a SaaS based platform for just that. So it is a SaaS platform. What are the users doing with the platform? I know we talked kind of macro, micro really quickly yeah. before we kind of go and dive into your, your backstory. Yeah. How do you actually use the platform? Yeah. So one, one good example, let's take a, uh, you know, take a marketer or a business development uh, folks. They're looking to move barrels from point A to point B. Think of it as sort of like a kayak uh, for oil pipelines in this one example. Mm, it's super okay. easy for us, uh, for me to fly here f- from D.C. I just go into what would be, you know, kayak or some other search engine, go from point A to point B. I know what it costs. A little more complicated. We start talking about different different grades of crude, different routes. What happens if a route goes down? Um, I need to determine, hey, how much is it going to cost? Well, that's diving into contracts. Um, nothing's mm-hmm. been digitized. So you have this very labor-intensive frustrating and I'll just call it annoying process that everyone that's on the Mm. commercial side of the energy business has to deal with day in, day out. Um, And we've automated that and made it, uh, put it into really a visual based, map based format that's highly intuitive, um, that's largely inspired by um, what we all deal with on a daily basis with respect to commercial products, which, you know, candidly, our viewpoint is over the course of the past 10, 20 years, the energy industry has kind of been overserved information, uh, but they've certainly been underserved integration uh, mm-hmm. into their workflows and daily routines. So um, I'd say sort of a second use case is if you're a project developer, you want to build a project, you know, you got really two questions. How long is it going to take and what's it going to cost? You know, those questions are you know, really, really complicated, um, especially the timing question, because that's involving many different permits. You can just go into our platform dial up a project, any number of attributes, you want to build X number of miles, X number of compressor stations, it'll give you a box plot of exactly how long it will take, you know, all in our system in one SaaS based platform. So, um, but we imagine it going much further than where it is right now. And uh, it's been an exciting crew, our own crew, which started with me and, you know, one other person. It's now uh, 20 people. And it's been, uh, it's been a fun story to grow it, uh, a bootstrap company, which, Um, you guys you know, have some experience with. Um, yeah, I want to dive into that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. I, actually, I like the comment that you made, you know, you know, talking about the vision 
for your company changes over time and becomes right. sometimes much bigger than what you anticipated. I mean, you look at us, we started a podcast for, <laughs> as a hobby is fun, you know, and obviously, you know, where we were at, at point A and where we're at now is completely different things that, you know, we didn't even imagine. So being nimble and fluid as a startup is really important too, because the opportunity may be even bigger than what you realized. And there's opportunities that you can capitalize on, on the way. Yeah. You know, one of the things you read in all these books about your solution needs to be, um, you have a 10x solution compared to other solutions. And I think that it kind of misses the point when you're starting a business. I think everything's 10x. It's 10 times. My father was an entrepreneur and he used to always tell me like, Chip, you start a business. Uh, and he was always wondering like why it was taking me so long to start a business since he spent his whole <laughs> life as an entrepreneur. And I was like, well, you know, some of us are, you know, learn a little, little, little quicker, get the entrepreneurial itch a little sooner, but yeah. you know, it's 10 times harder to, to start a business than you ever think. I always say your solution does have to be 10 times better. Um, but the other component of it, which I think is, is not really spoken about much often or that often is really that it's 10 times more satisfying, um, you know, growing your own business. I've loved absolutely every minute of it. Um, and obviously there are every moments, minute. maybe every not every minute, minute in <laughs> aggregate, if you trend it over time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it really is always 10 times harder, but 10 times more meaningful. And yeah. hopefully you guys have, you've probably seen that in your, yeah. your day to day as well. hundred percent. So, you know, you guys are bootstrapped. Let's back up, you know, before Arbo, before law IQ. I mean, you, you know, were in what? the Navy. So let's, let's fill in between there yeah. from you were in the Navy <laughs> in the early two thousands. That's right. Now we're in 2021. Yeah, you said, I think I heard you say that you spent over a year, year and a half out at sea, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So I went, I went to the Naval Academy. So the inspiration there was my grandfather went to the Naval Academy. Um, he was class of 1940. I was, uh, you know, class of 2000. So it was pretty, That's pretty, pretty cool. cool. Yeah. I'd, I'd never even, I remember I'd going to the guidance counselor and saying, Hey, you know, I had a bunch of friends going to lots of other schools and interested in you know, different programs in the East. I was like, I want to go to the Naval Academy. She's like, we've never had anyone apply there. And I was like, <laughs> well, okay, well, that's what I want to do. Um, so I went to the Naval Academy, graduated. It was a great experience for me. I loved it. Um, sort of similar to running a business. Everything was 10 times harder. Uh, electrical engineering was 10 times harder. Yeah. Uh, various math classes, 10 times harder. Um, but then I served as a surface warfare officer in the Navy, um, which, you know, by mandate, your your job is to be at sea, um, mm -hmm. which given the time that I entered service and everything was going on, uh, the world was crazy, you know, mm -hmm. 2000 to 2004, um, uh, I did spend most of my time at sea, much of my wife's chagrin <laughs> at the time. But my job was as an engineering officer most of the time. So I was in charge of an engineering plant, which were old steam and diesel power plants. They yeah. didn't, didn't get on one of the, uh, the new kind of push button gas turbine uh, ships. So <laughs> it was an interesting, it was an interesting experience, but you, you certainly learn much like growing a startup that it really, um, it really is all about the people. If you find great people to work with that are super smart and, and ambitious, uh, which our crew is, is certainly, you know, both of those things, um, like you're going to enjoy work and you'll probably succeed well beyond what you initially expected. So yeah, yeah. I was really fortunate to have that time in the Navy. I don't think I could have done an entire career like some of, some of my friends have. Yeah. But. It wasn't, wasn't for me either, man. Four years <laughs> and I was good to go. I was ready to go back to life. So you did your time there. Then you, you went back to DC then or did you go somewhere else? Yeah. Then went, went back to DC, um, wanted to go to law school. My wife uh, was in you know, law school at the time. Uh, did that at night while I was at a, a place called the Office of Naval Intelligence, which um, was a great place to work because your your sole job was the basically admirals wanted to have someone that actually had been in theater like a SEAL or aviator you know, or SWO come brief them on the threats. So our job was basically just to pull together information uh, from all the, the DC alphabet soup of agencies and then go out to the ships and brief them, which was really 
pretty awesome job um, and good training for an entrepreneur because you're basically out there and it's still a lot of information. You had to put it and package it in a format that people could get and that the Admiral had to trust you, you know, yeah. immediately with the information. So, you know, that was a really, really good experience. Um, and then, you know, I, I loved energy with respect to producing our own power on the ship, producing our own water, um, really got me kind of thinking. And then I you know, found a law firm called Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, which is this massive law firm that had a really great energy regulatory practice. But the only reason I chose it was I was trying to find anyone with a common ground to me. And I found a bunch of Army uh, and Navy guys, which is kind of hard to find in practicing law, I found, um, <laughs> which is great. So I had six years working there, um, spending a lot of time working on uh, the renaissance that was going on with the commercial nuclear fleet um, at the time, that the, the renaissance that did not, uh, in fact, take off. And then mm -hmm. we, we actually helped build uh, or the law firm's first um, shale gas regulatory practice. Uh, so oh, really? we ended up representing oil field services, fracking companies uh, in investigations tied to what propens are being used, et cetera. And that's what really got me thinking, like I'm sitting around having these conversations that really bet the company with companies. There's no data to back up, no workflows to inform, and there's certainly no statistics behind the decisions that are being made. There's got to be kind of a better way uh, to go about it. So um, entered the idea, uh, for the business at the time. So it's pretty cool because you had exposure to energy from different angles, right? You know, whether it was being on a ship and having these older, you know, coal fired generation, you know, producing your own water and that kind of got your brain rolling into, you know, self-sufficiency and energy for an ecosystem. And then obviously you guys set up the uh, shale regulatory uh, firm. And so you saw what was happening between EMPs and OFS and things of that nature. Also in the Navy, you know, with the nuclear, um, <laughs> like that's something that I actually want to talk more about on digital wildcatters is nuclear energy, because it always blows my mind that nuclear hasn't really taken off in terms of uh, carrying the workload um, for baseload energy. So it's kind of interesting seeing that you had different exposure to energy systems and problems. What attracted you to oil and gas and shale? Was it because it's just so fucked up that you're like, man, there's got to be <laughs> some low-hanging fruit here to, to attack it and build a solution yeah, for that's, it? Yeah, that's great. Um, so kind of two points on, on what you said, because we've grown the team in a way that's kind of similar in the sense that if we were to grow our audience, our customer base are largely those who finance, transport, uh, you know, produce and consume uh, power largely on the oil and gas side. Um, and, you know, our team is probably 30% uh, of our team come from industry, um, but we've tried to make sure we throttle it with folks that have expertise in other industries because having those diverse viewpoints really informs the product, the user experience, uh, et cetera. And also, you know, having folks like I'm, you know, I'm in my forties and uh, getting sort of uh, on the senior side uh, <laughs> where, you know, software developers are, you know, largely in their twenties and, uh, you know, having their experience on best in class, best in breeds for software products, you know, was super, super important. But um, oil and gas, uh, yeah, I was, I saw a lot of opportunity in kind of two areas. One, uh, it had a large data set like to yeah. begin with or an information set um, that was filed in, you know, like essentially boxes at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, yeah. <laughs> utility commissions, and people have been building pipeline for long, pipelines for a long time, um, you know, LNG less so, uh, but also there was a viewpoint at the time that infrastructure was not going to be as easy to build as it was 10 years before that. And yeah. 
there was a lot of resistance early on. Um, initially, you know, with customers saying, oh, no, I know it takes 12 months to get from point A to point B. Um, you know, but there are many variables that have been involved that, you know, we can talk about I'm in sure. the past decade or so. Absolutely. Yeah. You all right over there, Jake? <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you listening to the audio version, Jake's microphone boom arm just <laughs> fell apart while uh, we were talking. So apologies if you hear any noise there. Probably won't edit it out. Just keep the bloopers in. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we're golden. So it's a first. Chip, tell me, you know, for someone like me, you know, I'm more upstream, right? Mm -hmm. And when I talk about oil and gas technology, you know, I'm really familiar with the processes and systems of actually extracting hydrocarbons out of the ground. But when it comes to pipelines and regulatory um, associated with that, you know, I, I'm not going to bullshit you. Like I'm, I'm lost. I don't, I don't really, I'm not familiar with the problems that that industry faced. So when you really saw the problems, explain to us what the problems were in your mind. Yeah. The problems were um, on the pipeline, on the pipeline side, they were largely tied to the fact that um, you have a large group of people that don't want pipelines to be built, any infrastructure uh, mm -hmm. to be built. And, uh, you know, I think that's a theme that, you know, I think you're going to see on the renewable front. Um, every energy infrastructure project is going to impact the environment. Um, and there will be people um, that don't want that project, whatever it may be, uh, solar, um, whether it's wind or whether it's pipeline. Yeah, we uh, refer built. to them as NIMBYs, right? Right, yeah. Not NIMBYs. in my backyards. Right. So, and, not, like, not my and, and this was a huge conversation on Twitter the other day because, uh, somewhere off the East Coast, um, they're building this big wind farm and they just had to run a line through this prominent neighborhood. And it was a two day construction project and that um, affluent neighborhood shut it down because they didn't want it running through their neighborhood or they didn't want to shut down the road for two days. And so it was a really big talking point on climate tech Twitter huh. of what's the bigger barrier to renewables. Is it actually oil and gas companies or is it NIMBYs that don't want these things in their mm. backyard. Right. And there, there has to be some sort of, you know, some sort of middle ground, right? Like, uh, you get a lot of discussions about responsibly sourced gas. You know, what does that mean? You know, will people pay more for it? People the you know, the end user, the consumer, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, buying local, um, mm -hmm. oftentimes pay more, you know, for that or, or something with an organic, you know, sort of stamp on it. Yeah. Um, you know, but a lot of the issues are really tied to, tied to market based issues. There's plenty of innovation, uh, when it comes to, uh, the upstream side, and you know, we've seen that you know, machine learning really had its beginning, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in energy with respect to getting, you know, product more efficiently out of the ground. Where it's, you know, been sort of starved though is when it comes to the integration from the upstream to the transportation network, and then ultimately, you know, to downstream. And you know, the issues are sure they're on the project side. They're, um, you know, interveners, you know, getting involved in projects and, and causing issues. But you know, they're also with respect to you know making sure you're getting in at for regulated utilities, you're getting an adequate you know, return on that invested capital that goes into the project. So, um, and there's a huge, great data set there, you know, to mine through to help customers um, be able to have a lot more precision to really sharpen their pencils with respect to, you know, what should the return on equity be? What should the risk factor be uh, with respect to, you know, each of my assets? So, um, you know, the most fun part is engaging with customers and getting there viewpoints. I had breakfast this morning, you know, uh, with one, a major uh, pipeline company downtown and just hearing their viewpoints. Um, and I think that's, 
when you think about entrepreneurship, I think, and you guys have you know, probably seen it as well, it's a little different with the SaaS company. Uh, if you build a company and it's just about the product and monitoring passively what they, you know, what the customer does, um, that's oftentimes and will always be not enough. You got to get in front of the customer, you know, know what screens they have up, what's on their mind, um, mm-hmm. where do they, you know, where do they live, how do they go about their day to day routine? Because that's where you really get the great product ideas to help them. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, you to have those it. feedback loops. Totally. Yeah. Yep. How, how is this process done now without Arbo? It's done manually. Um, so literally, are we picking up phone calls, emails, maybe checking databases, kind of all of the above kind of thing? Yeah, three, basically three ways. One, breaking open websites, refreshing okay. web pages, trying to figure out and then trying to kind of control F through information, um, doing the same thing through regulatory sites, um, you know, to get the information that you want. It's hugely laborious, not scalable work. And if you're in the production you know, marketplace and you think your your market is is very small, it's oftentimes very small just because your your marketing arm can't expand their aperture any further because they reach a certain um, threshold, a certain ceiling with respect to the information that they can s- consume. So they mm-hmm. need data to be able to do that. Um, from a mapping standpoint, you know, oftentimes it's simply they know their assets, but knowing other people's assets in the competitive marketplace, um, you know, is is hugely you know, labor intensive, but deals are done in the physical marketplace in person mm-hmm. uh, through Yahoo Chat. They're not done largely through a platform, uh, <laughs> which is mind blowing if you're in the scheduling or origination business. At least it was to us that there's no technical platform based solution, you know, to pull that together. Sort of similar, you know, like I you know, mentioned before, as sort of a kayak does, you know, with respect to air travel. Yeah. Um, but you've seen this in other, you know, other hard asset industries. They take a long time to get to that at least in the physical space, the point where you're aggregating all the foundational data that's necessary and then building, you know, that commercial or transactional layer on top of it. And that's, you know, that's our focus right now. And we haven't seen, um, you know, others moving that direction, um, which is, which yeah. is good. Uh, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Datagration. Whether an operator is striving to meet production quotas in a new asset or managing a mature field with declining production, the challenge can be the same. Oil and gas companies want to optimize production from each well to help attain profitability goals and return on investment. The improved oil recovery optimization solutions native to Datagration's PetroVisor platform help operators identify underperforming wells, choose the best secondary oil recovery techniques, optimize artificial lift programs and equipment, check surface facilities, health, and maximize uptime. This unified platform helps automate business processes improves collaboration among teams and provides complete data visibility through all operational functions. Methods such as virtual flow metering, pattern recognition, and events detection help reduce the risk of underperformance and well failure and forecast well problems. Together, these workflows help customers identify and solve well performance issues that affect production across the field. To learn more, just go to datagration.com. So let's talk about the genesis of Law IQ when you had the idea because you guys are bootstrapped. I'm always fascinated to talk to bootstrap founders in enterprise space because it's already hard enough creating and scaling a bootstrap company, you know, just say it's consumer SaaS. That's one thing. But doing it in enterprise SaaS is, you know, it's just, it's almost impossible. Sales cycles, just the cost of building an enterprise. Yeah, you don't have a lot of success stories that were bootstrap enterprise SaaS. Very, very few. So you go to create this, you know, you essentially abandon your career in uh, as an attorney, which, you know, great career. My wife said the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, 
respect to your wife for uh, you know putting up with your shit. Oh, she's a and, gem. And, you know, yeah. Um, you know, how did you how did you get started? You know, who who developed it? You know, are you the technical person that actually coded it? Did you have a technical uh, partner that coded it? How did you guys actually build the product? How did you scale the team? Like, let's actually talk about the pain points of bootstrapping a business because, I mean, we can talk on this all day. We're bootstrapped mm-hmm. ourselves and it's hard to get to that point to where, you know, you can hire the first employee and, you know, keep growing and growing and growing because you never have that injection of capital and resources. And sometimes, you know, especially at that enterprise level, whenever it's like, if you are going to do within revenue, it's, do you even have the people to be able to execute on the work once yeah. you close the contract? Yeah. You right? go close a deal and, and then onboarding deal them and, yeah. and then all of that. It's like, it's like this chicken and the egg issue that you experience. Yeah. It's a couple hour podcast, right? Well, oh yeah. This yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes long. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. A couple, couple anecdotes. Um, you know, not, I didn't come from Houston and that's where, where our target audience was and mm-hmm. the other place, uh, where most of our customers, um, you know, come from, uh, until we moved into the digital world, uh, was wall street and that wasn't my background uh, either. Yeah. Uh, so I, I took a couple of weeks off. We had put together, um, uh, a classmate of mine from the Naval Academy, uh, his whole background was in computer science, working at the NSA, building different types of big data tools. So um, I was not, uh, you know, the technical uh, lead. But before we got even down the road of building anything, we built basically a clickable prototype. Um, it's beautiful looking front end, not tied into any back end, mm-hmm. um, just purely the user experience. And, you know, I built it through an Envision app. Um, and then I took it on the road. So I spent weeks um, in cafeteria, uh, cafeterias of large bulge bracket banks. Um, <laughs> in fact, to your point, our first customer was a large bulge bracket bank, which is a whole new story in compliance and getting the deal done. Um, went through the clickable prototype. Guy was running a several billion dollar fund at the time. He said, listen, if you can actually build this, I'll pay for it. I said, fine, I'll be back in two months because we, we can get this done. <laughs> Well, lo and, lo and behold, uh, two months later, he said, hey, I want it. Um, can you sign me up? And then we doubled the engineering team at the time, you know, went ahead of our burn to make sure we could deliver for uh, the customer, which you know, at the time seemed crazy. You know, went from you know, <laughs> two uh, engineers, you know, we were about eight or nine engineers just to get it built uh, so we could deliver based on the contract. But, yeah. you know, and, and, but that story sticks with me because um, you know, that was sort of the, the grit and hustle that was necessary the constant phone calls, cold phone calls, which no one wants to talk about, but that's how stuff gets done. Um, yep. We landed a major utility, um, and I, I gave them a call as the head of uh, their gas division uh, close by where we were in D.C., and said, hey, you, I'm in your town right now. Uh, you mind if I swing by? We'll have lunch. I wasn't in his town. I was two and a half hours away. Uh, <laughs> he said lunch. I called him at 10. He said, okay, yeah, I'll, let, let's do lunch. I hustled down there. And that <laughs> that was, that was we went out. It was perfect because I was in his you know world. Thankfully, it wasn't COVID. And we went out to lunch, talked about their needs, talked about the product we had. And I showed it to him. And yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of the foundation. Um, it's always back to kind of things that are 10 times harder a lot of people don't want to do that work and, and really they like to talk about grit, but, um, yeah, you, you really have to. And I found that's a good leadership trait for the rest of the team, you know, to be able to see that, you know, I still do the same thing nowadays. If a customer wants to meet, um, it's going to be important to the business. And I understand the ROI that I'm going to you know, hustle together to make it work. Um, yeah. the team's got to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love hearing that story because I mean, we have similar stories as well and you get, essentially your MVP up 
and you get a commitment and then I'm sure you had this oh shit moment where you're <laughs> like, okay, now we actually got to deliver and build it. And so, you know, you'd love to think that you get that check in and it's a great feeling. You're like, oh, we've made it. But then I'm sure you have all this anxiety and, and pressure to actually deliver and build that product. And then all of a sudden you have eight engineers and you're like, okay, now we got to get more work and we need to actually make this a sustainable business. And, but that pressure of being bootstrapped, like as long as you can make all the timing and the components come together and work, I mean, it can, if, if you look at it over time, it's beautiful, but I'm sure in the trenches in the day to day, there's a lot of stress. And I think it's really work. organic. It makes good. I talk a lot uh, with my wife too and uh, the rest of our team about like what's good pressure and stress and what's what's not. And I think yeah. what you described is really good, you know, organic stress and pressure. Like you're looking at people that are depending on you to close deals, depending upon you to you know have the right vision for the company. And guess what? It's not always going to be 100% right. You're going to make some missteps mm-hmm. along the way. So you can't necessarily be the type of person that's not fine with the uh, you know, stepping in a few ruts here as long as you can figure out how to get yourself out of it. But yeah, um, yeah, it's never, yeah, you reach that one stage and you have a few customers and you realize I need to keep them engaged. They need to make sure they have value. Then the next step was, oh man, this is three months from when they're supposed to renew. I better, I got to figure out that whole renewal process. Oh wait, now the <laughs> business still needs to grow at a certain clip to be, you know, a valuable business by, you know, someone, you know, on the outside looking at, looking yeah. in. So, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a process. It's a constant learning curve, which is for some and it's, it's not for others. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Jake and I talk about that a lot is like, you want to maintain this level, like there's a healthy amount of stress and, you know, a sense of urgency to get things done. And sometimes I feel like some startups that are overcapitalized don't have that sense of urgency or that, that pressure to go execute. And so sometimes, you know, their downfall is that they, had too much too many resources at their disposal i think sometimes it's also just that probably maybe ignorance is bliss there i'm just like i think that we 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 told that we were able to do a lot of things for a lot cheaper just because Mm. we were in the trenches for so long being bootstrapped and every dollar was our dollar you know and so not really (laughs) having that budget to go out and spend a lot of money on things and being like well how can we do this for like practically nothing yeah some of the video work that we do i mean if you're a corporation it costs you like 15 or 20 grand and, you know, we do it for a few hundred bucks. So, oh, yeah. so that's just kind of part of being bootstrapped and figuring out how to do those things cheaply. Yeah. We in, yeah, it's funny you say that. Um, and I think that because the team responds over time to that, like when the pandemic hit, I mean, that's such a huge shock, obviously for, mm-hmm. for everybody, certainly one of the biggest shocks was, you know, to retail and to energy mm-hmm. um, at the time. You know, and I think you know, at the time we, our team doubled down. I mean, everyone got as since that time frame, you know, culture is you know, incredibly uh, tight. But we made a decision that was sort of counterintuitive in end of March to start building more, to take any earnings that we'd have and channel them back into product development because we saw an opportunity that others would would not be playing sort of offense, you know, at that time. Which, you know, looking at the numbers, making sure you're you have confidence in the renewal that the you know your team, <laughs> your sales guys are saying, uh, hey, you know, we think we're going to renew or land this account. Better be right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. say on on that note, you know, every company that I think we've talked to, or most of the companies that we've talked to, that were able to in a, in a position to double down on development during COVID, have ended up so much better off than they were before. Yeah, and, and those who kind of retreated back and like kind of lived in fear a little bit, maybe didn't have the ability to double down, I think are, are hurting a little bit. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'd be, 
um, I would not be honest if I was saying that it was 100% my decision. Like our management team, you know, which includes uh, Craig Hallman and Jim Huey, I mean, they were big advocates of Chip. I know, like, you're the one looking at, you know, the dollars and cents every day, but we got to invest. Like, this is the time to do it, our customers are saying. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they were big advocates. And I think that's, you know, to your point and what's great, you have, you know, each other to bounce ideas off of. But more importantly, do you have the, you know, do you have a contrarian viewpoint that's going to come into the fold, the fold to really help you fully think things through? Um, yeah. And then how do you convey that to the team uh, in a way that's you know, credible that they can buy in? Um, yep. Sometimes when it is counterintuitive, people say, shouldn't we just slash everything? Um, mm-hmm. We did slash our commercial r- our real estate um, deal at the time. Like you and yeah. 99% of companies. <laughs> yeah. Smart we, move. We were like one week from having to sign, moving into a bigger uh, space. And yeah, we were kind of on the fence the whole time about it. So it was, it was, it was good to have yeah. that one, that one off, save some more money for product development, which was Absolutely. great. Yeah. yeah. So how are things, you know, really changed for you guys operationally? You know, obviously you, uh, nixed the commercial real estate contract. So <laughs> I'm assuming that you guys are working, you know, remote and I don't know how life is up in DC, but I imagine it's completely different than it's been here in Houston during COVID, <laughs> you know, like you guys are down here meeting with customers face to face and, um, um, you know, how's, how has being based in DC like really affected you guys? I think the, the, the big change, you just, you just hit the, hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, Houston is such a different place right now than, uh, than DC. I mean, DC, I go out to walk the dog at night and, you know, if, uh, uh, I was walking the, the dog the other night and a lady was on the other side of the street. So like 30 feet away, she was, she had no mask on and she was apologizing you know, profusely for not having her mask on. Which, Are you serious? Yeah. You know, but here, you know, Texas is a little different. Um, yeah. you know, this is the corpus of our, where our customer base, you know, is, uh, you know, in the energy market. So, you know, the, the inability to travel and get in front of customers, you know, to learn what's going on in their lives is, uh, you know, that's been, um, Yep, that's been problematic, which thankfully we're kind of through that yeah. and, and, and back to hopefully. visiting, yeah. visiting <laughs> hopefully, right. Uh, visiting in person. It's been refreshing, I would say, yeah. to, uh, to be back in front of customers, um, you know, this past week. Yeah. I just can't imagine growing a SaaS business or any business for that matter, where you can't meet face to face with customers. I mean, we've been, I guess we've been doing it, but we still do have the luxury of meeting with people here in Houston. Mm-hmm. Luckily, our, the majority our sales of our- team has a good solution for this because they're they're in Denver. Uh, so oh, I have yeah. a big portion of our team is there. And I, I turned to uh, James, who who runs our sales and, and business development. I said, listen, you get on the slopes as much as you want with as many traders, marketers, originators. <laughs> so he's been skiing. They did some skiing conferences. Um, and that's great time because you're on a lift, you know, with a potential I'm sure customer. Biz, biz dev guys are loving it. Like, yeah, I love it. I said, <laughs> you know, we will, we'll channel more, more capital, uh, you know, to your skiing and, and golf, whatever, whatever you're into, uh, you know, to get that time in front of customers. Cause it's organic and, you know, you have captive audience and, um, you build strong relationships that way. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not a skier, so that's why they got to They have to do that. Yeah. I'm not a skier. I'm either. just so in the market for some Arbo and some skiing. So we might have to end up going <laughs> to <Yeah>. <laughs> have all kinds of requests from this podcast. Like, Hey, I want to go skiing. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That'd be good. I know, uh, Rob Norton's going to hit him up for sure. I know. So. But have a good skiing budget. Yeah. <laughs> so for you guys, you know, coming, you know, it seems that we're on the tail end of COVID, hopefully. And, you know, really it kind of seems that the energy market, oil and gas specifically, has found some stabilization. Um, you know, you're seeing some interesting things in the market. 
Although I did see one thing today that the CIA's Biden's releasing a uh, confidential CIA report on the Saudi prince ordering a hit on that journalist. And so I'm sure that Saudi's not going to be big fans of the U.S. here in a couple of weeks. Saudi's done a lot so, of shady stuff. So who knows? I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's, knows that's just that one of like many things. The whole Jeff Bezos phone hacking thing. Remember yeah. that? There was yeah. like actual evidence about that that was the Saudi. Mm. Yeah. So prince. let's see uh, how that affects OPEC and shale producer relations. But, you know, I, I think that things are, they seem to be turning around for the industry. And it's obviously been a really rough year. It's been a really rough year for everyone involved, especially startups. You know, like we were talking about when you have an, a bootstrap or just enterprise startup, it's tough. You've seen a lot of them go under over the last year just because the sales cycles are so long, the the target clients are busy putting out fires and don't really have time to integrate new solutions and technologies. And I don't know if you guys have dealt with this at all, you know, mm. maybe in the early stages of um, the energy crash and, and COVID, you might've dealt with this. What are some of your goals moving forward over the next year? You know, how how do you guys continue to, to grow and come out of the madness on top? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I think there's two, two answers or one answer to it. And it's kind of a similar theme. And I think when it comes to SaaS product development, in my view, there's been more and more of a movement, um, especially as you look at analog industries outside of energy to more of an end user focused, um, application. So instead of selling large enterprise sales, they're bundled by sort of number of seats you know, yeah. you're selling into you know, senior vice president who's, you know, completely distracted right now for all the reasons and good reasons, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you mentioned before, um, the more you can build up your base focused on really innovating your tech for the individual user. So instead of focusing on the senior vice president who wants you to give a PowerPoint presentation on your return of investment to a specific division, you know, just make the life of Colin or Jake far less more or far more efficient, far more productive, far less annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you're solving that pain point, um, that's a different pricing model. That's a different way to structure a business. Um, and I think um, it's worked incredibly well at scale, you know, in other B two B enterprises. But we've seen very little of it with respect to energy tech. And that's that's a change for us from a you know pricing you know and positioning strategy you know for the year and one you know that we think um, we've already seen you know ways in which we've been you know far more effective at doing that than than Chip or James or someone else hopping on a plane, doing the, doing the meetings, trying to get people who are otherwise distracted, mm-hmm. you know, engaged. And I think the kind of the second area is, um, we haven't talked much about ESG, there's lots of acronyms and I'm, I'm a Navy guy <laughs> from DC, so I'm, I'm full of acronyms. The, uh, um, I hate acronyms, so yeah, I'm like the, the opposite yeah, of the, yeah. like the anti-acronym guy. I can't really define <laughs> ESG and many people have some difficulty you know, well, with so it. So we're well. actually, so I have a friend that runs an ESG fund and I was talking to her the other day. I was like, Hey, will you come on the podcast? Like what the hell does ESG actually mean? Like, I know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean in terms of, um, what do the markets think of it? So actually, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, I, I definitely have definitely have a viewpoint on it. I mean, I think, but with respect to our customers, whether they're on the production side, whether they're you know in transportation or downstream business, it's really kind of it's been like watching an episode of uh, Craig and I referring to as ESG Survivor. Like everyone's trying to kind of figure <laughs> out how to like what the rules are going to be, um, what the metrics are. Um, I think you'll see out of this. 
you know, the sell side kind of fundamental investors who are used to number crunching and getting fed tons of reams of data stripped from the SEC. I think you're going to see a whole new area of, um, you know, in the investor base looking at ESG metrics, um, mm-hmm. right? Um, what those are is what our all of our customers are struggling with, what data informs them. Um, we spend a lot of time mining together information about, you know, releases, construction, you know, quality, um, looking at emissions data, um, you know, looking at interactions with environmental groups. Um, you know, that's really been the theme, whether you're in the transportation space or the production space and how it gets resolved will likely be resolved, um, in my view, through leaders of a few of the large companies figuring out what should be the standards and then being transparent about the data that informs them, which is something the industry, uh, which has been a great industry, I've been lucky to be a part of, is not always the most transparent about their underlying data. But yeah. you know, we're looking at you know an industry that the crew change, if you call it that, a next generation workforce is used to transparency all the time. They're used to coming on podcasts. My kids learn through YouTube, uh, mm-hmm. probably more so than they did before the pandemic. Um, you know, and I think. Um, you know, the next generation workforce is looking for technology and companies to be more transparent about their data and take some leadership, you know, roles in that regard. So, you know, we're trying to um, really be at the forefront or kind of the focal point of integrating that information through our SaaS platform to inform some of those strategic decisions. I love that you hit on that because I have a Twitter thread going on right now talking about one of our sessions for Evolve. We were talking about transparency and data and getting real-time lease operating expense Mm -hmm. costs. And I had some people in my mentions saying trust and oil and gas don't go hand in hand. I was like, okay, well, are you just going to accept that or are we going to change it? And like, well, first you have to change the culture of oil and gas. And I said, yeah, but the thing is, is everyone that's here on Twitter has a common denominator in the fact that we think that the oil and gas business is ran by a bunch of, I mean, it's always been a bunch of boomers that haven't been transparent with data or anything for that matter. And so it's up to the younger generations to have some leadership and put in these initiatives for trust and transparency and things of that nature. And it's a collective effort to change the culture of an industry. And I don't think that, I really don't think that there's a fucking option. If this space is going to be investable again, you have to have that. Like investors don't want to invest in something that it's clouded and that they don't have any transparency into. So the energy industry is, is going to struggle the most by just regaining trust I yep. think more than anything. And I think the only way to do that is through transparency, radical transparency. Right. And right. I don't think anybody, anybody hurts in that scenario other than those people who are those boomers who are <laughs> shady. <laughs> who are shady. Yeah. So many fucking shady. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, a key component of that is the transparency. Um, you know, and the other is, you know, starting to hire, um, younger generation, start implementing, mm-hmm. you know, new ideas, look for inspiration to not come necessarily from the energy industry, right? Hire people that mm-hmm. want to be an energy, uh, take as an example, our, I, I became a fan of both of you guys through our head of product who said, who was new to the industry, Rockstar, really? Rockstar Smart has the cool. uh, only person on the team with patents uh, you know, in her name, biomedical engineer from, from Vanderbilt. She said, Chip, you got to check out this podcast. I've been doing everything I can to learn about the industry. Um, and these guys, like, they like they get it. Like, this is the next generation. But 
people like myself don't know enough about energy. Um, we're not educated. Um, I remember when I was hiring her, I said, you know, what percentage of, uh, you know, U.S. power do you think comes from renewables? 50% was you know, the answer. <laughs> so, I mean, there's an ener- there's an education gap that, um, you know, that, that needs to be closed. But there's also, you need to pull inspiration from people who are using products um, in a next generation way because most of the data products that are out there right now, um, you can go through the list of them. They're all big, huge Goliath companies mm-hmm. that have been gobbling up um, you know, smaller companies along the way mm-hmm. and doing minor amounts of innovation because they haven't had built products in a yeah. long time. Because product development work and thinking about a user and their behaviors is a lot less about energy. And it's a more, it's far more about understanding the patterns of people. Um, yeah. And that's a component of it, I think, that is oftentimes lost because the boomer generation wants to uh, mm-hmm. put up sort of the, the complexity as a barrier to entry because it keeps them in their sort of the, their position, whereas yep. the ones that are really open-minded want you know the next generation workforce to learn as much as they can, as fast as they can, and um, and to learn from them. Which- in, in in defense of the boomers, because we're not we're not just picking on these guys, right? <laughs> you know, see, seeing where like my parents and grandparents are and stuff, and I think it goes back to just they're scared of what they don't understand, right? We are digital natives. We grew up with the internet. We, we've been able to see from 56K dial-up to fiber. We've been able to see from, you know, Nokia phones to the iPhones that we have today. And we grew up with that, right? And so they're scared of the things that they don't understand. So let's just fend in there. But at the same time, that's not a good excuse for why we can't evolve forward. And right. as an additional caveat to what you said, I think another thing that's really, really, really important is that we have to build these cultures internally at these companies, whether it be startups and corporations where individuals are not scared to innovate and bring ideas to the table. Because if you're constantly stifling innovation and you're shutting down new ideas just to kind of, you know, be rank and file and kind of play the corporate role that you're supposed to play, then we're never going to see this true renaissance that we need to see in, in, in energy to get to the point to where we need to get. Right. I think one of the great parts about it is energy is being talked about all the yeah. time now. I mean, a lot. For, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely lot. in the spotlight, right? It's, it's in the spotlight. And I think to the extent the dialogue can change from clean to cleaner, I think that would be advantageous, you know, for the industry. Right. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want uh, oil or gas to be cleaner? Everyone does yep. in the yeah. industry, you know, or not. We should talk about mm-hmm. renewables without, you know, sort of lionizing them. If you're on the other you know, side of things. Um, you know, we should be engaging with, you know, NGOs to get their, you know, viewpoints. Um, but yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, but then you need to put money behind that. Yep. Right. And 100%. that's part of the problem. Like if that's not, if you can't see the return on an investment there, back to my point from before, um, sometimes it's tough to make the capital commitment with mm-hmm. a kind of discretionary yeah. budget, but some companies are doing a good job. We have several, um, customers who have innovation divisions and have actually have, you know, teams of people, you know, working, mm-hmm. you know, lots of times side by side with us to innovate on new ideas, but mm-hmm. working with their own internal data. But uh, it'd be great to see more and more. I think, I think DCP midstream is probably one of the best examples. Mm-hmm. They, they have been kind of at the forefront of what we've seen in midstream companies with, I think they have like an innovation officer and all the other midstream companies are kind of looking to them to seeing what kind of innovation they're doing in the same way that Anadarko was kind of playing that same role right. in upstream prior to their, their, their acquisition. So I really like that comment that you made about your product manager finding our, I mean, that's a huge objective for digital wildcatters is to make energy sexy to people outside right. of energy, because it is one of the most fascinating 
topics. And I'm the reason I find it fascinating is because even within oil and gas, you know, I've spent a decade working in oil and gas operations and there's still things that I can learn every day within that little niche. But then every podcast we learn something new. <laughs> midstream, downstream, uh, it's just an infinite opportunity to learn. And then you get outside of oil and gas and you go look at, you know, geothermal or distributed energy systems or anything like that. I mean, you can never learn everything that there is to learn. Yep. And these are, I mean, whether you know it or not, every single person on the earth is affected by energy and you should understand energy. Just like that comments you made about, you know, where does the, the majority of electricity, what is it powered by, generated by? Well, it's not 50% solar. I think a lot of people in, in, a lot of people in Texas so. got, got taken to school this week on yeah, where electricity yeah, right. comes from. But right. and actually this week was like, it was really cool because over on Twitter, you have two groups. You have Energy Fintwit, which is mostly cynical oil and right. gas guys that have been burned by oil and gas. And then you have uh, Energy Twitter, which is all of your climate tech and a lot of new people coming into the space. And last week during the whole Texas polar vortex ERCOT fiasco, both sides were coming together and having constructive conversations. And that's what has to happen. You have to have the gap needs to be bridged between what we're currently doing and where we're moving to towards in the future. And just like you said, like we yep. need smart people outside of oil and gas that understand technology to come help solve these problems. And then you need the domain expertise from people that are currently in energy and you need to, you know, intertwine these two types of skill sets and talent. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's not an easy thing to do, but I, I think one of the barriers is that a lot of people have closed mindsets on both yep. sides. Mm -hmm. But I also think that with newer generations coming up that, you're getting over that. And it's just like with digital wildcatters. Like I have so many people on Twitter that didn't know anything about oil and gas and I'll get on the phone with them and I'll spend 20 minutes talking to them on the phone and they're fascinated by the industry. <laughs> and they're fascinated that everything that they believed was completely wrong. And, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, it's really putting out that message of look, oil and gas, what we're doing today can be cleaner. You know, I think some of the, the biggest um, environmental technology, the, the most impactful environmental technology we'll see over the next decade is happening within oil and gas. Hey, how can we cut down on carbon emissions today with what we're doing? And, and I think a lot of the innovation is coming from within the industry. I yep. think we've seen what's possible. We've we've uh, released a video on how oil and gas is kind of fighting climate change through a lot of the different technologies that um, are used to either detect emissions or prevent, mm. um, you know, methane emissions and things like that. And we've seen with the Environmental Defense Fund, they have data. Uh, there's a completely unbiased organization showing that there's thousands of pads in Midland, in the Permian Basin, that have absolutely zero emissions whatsoever. So it shows us what is possible. So then why aren't we doing that across the board everywhere, right? And I think this whole, you'll see it in um, the conversation that we had with, with Dan Pickering and Scott Gale the other day for, for Evolve was really, it's not either or between oil and gas and, and renewables and other forms of energy. It's both. You have to understand that the energy mix is going to be just that. It is going to be an energy mix. And this uh, radical, almost like religious affiliation with one side or the other needs to be completely abolished yeah, it's very cultish it's very very cultish and it's and very so if, it's so very if you're clear. guilty of that it's very like clear look at yourself you know looking at data post polar vortex times that 
the whole ERCOT issue oh, is hundred percent is planning. <laughs> it's yeah. poor planning by ERCOT. Yeah. But but it's in, but I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, integration is should be the word that's used more frequently in energy. Yeah. We, we have we it would probably surprise you. We have as many oil, we have oil and gas companies that have renewable divisions now, entire divisions devoted to renewables. Mm-hmm. I probably have more mm-hmm. questions because we mine through every single renewable energy project to predict and when it's going to be put in service, whether it's a little solar project or big wind you know, project. Mm-hmm. And we have many questions about that from oil and gas, which no one would have asking about that information, you know, a year or so ago. Yeah. Um, and you know, which means the learning curve is steeper. So now both sides are having to, you know, learn and, you know, the, the ERCOT and issues here in Texas, you know, recent, you know, give you a great, you know, great pause to say, Hey, just staying in one silo, uh, is is not the way to build a business in the future. You know, pulling that ecosystem together. You know, our focus is on the digital side, but you know, we love the companies that are focused on new, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, um, new storage issues. Um, mm-hmm. You know, does blockchain you know play a role? I mean, it's going to take every aspect of innovation, everything we can muster yeah. really as a country, <laughs> uh, you know, to get behind. Right? Yeah. It certainly isn't going to be. I mean, I'm in the. I'm in ground zero when it comes where we live when it comes to you know, polarized climates at times, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, outside the polar vortex, um, and, and that's just not like it's not constructive. And you see it more and more in the regul- seeping into the regulatory agencies where um, you got to have more of an integrated approach. So you got to get the Absolutely. education, um, you know, at least to be on on par, so people are have the same um, wherewithal to be be able to inform the conversation. For sure. Right? I yeah. think in closing, I think the silver lining of the, the double black swan event that we experienced in 2020 and now Snowvid that we experienced here in the last couple of weeks is that, you know, energy has been kind of at the forefront of the conversation publicly. Um, and I think that, yeah, more people are thinking about it. And I think that we're also seeing just tons and tons of innovation. I think we've seen more innovation and more people kind of going out of their own the, the, the silver lining, once again, of, of the layoffs that we've seen in oil and gas is that we're seeing more entrepreneurs jumping in the space just like yep. you have and tons of the guys that we have on the show and saying, hey, there's a lot of problems in this energy industry that we would love to solve. And people are kind of taking maybe some of their uh, severance money, using that as seed money and, and building tools and, and building companies out of this. And so I'm extremely bullish over you know, the next couple of years to see where the energy industry as a whole is going to go. And I think, um, I'm excited to continue to, to tell these stories and have people on just like you. So thanks for being here, man. This has been hey, fantastic. Product manager. Thanks too. Yeah. We use it now in our, um, onboarding. Yeah. So we have like onboarding staff for, that's for awesome. New, that's cool. <laughs> that's, hire, so, that's so uh, cool to hear because it's a new use case for you guys. <laughs> yeah, <right>? absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like we said, I mean, this started off as a passion project for us and it was never intended to really be what it's become. So like hearing things like that, makes Great. all of this worth it. You know, we've been yeah. dropping an episode now for, I guess what three years probably are close yeah. to it. Yeah, two and a half years something. Yeah, so like guys are doing great. Any way we can help? Uh, yeah, glad to. I'm excited for the conference so, as well. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys want to check out uh, Arbo, Chip, where can they find Arbo? What's the what's the domain URL? Uh, you go to goarbo.com. Goarbo.com. Yep. All right, cool. And then Chip's going to be on Evolve Conference. So he's going to be doing a demo. Um, also going to be doing a uh, panel on uh, Dapple. So it's going to be really good information. So make sure to check that out. I think this episode might go out after Evolve. So um, if it is, you can watch the replay. Be up on our website. Check out the videos. Chip, thanks for coming on, man. This is great. You bet, guys. It's the highlight of the past year for me. Yeah. (laughs) Getting getting to travel. Never one of the first places you got to see. (laughs) No, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, thanks for being flexible. And um, thanks for getting through everything you guys went through last week. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. All right, guys, to please take two seconds, share the uh, episode with your friends and family. Go sign up for the Roundup newsletter. Uh, the Roundup newsletter, man, it is, it is taking off. We're getting notifications left and right of new subscribers. So go check that out. If you're not on the list, you're missing out. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.